we turn together. Let's take our Bibles and our copy of the Scriptures and turn to the book of Nehemiah this morning. Let's find our place in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. And this morning we will continue to introduce this book and to move into chapter 1 and study this wonderful book that we believe the Lord has led us to for this moment, for such a time as this, Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's find our place beginning there in verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll read the chapter together. Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, the Jews who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and in great reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe to do your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Verse 10, Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? Well, for I was the king's cup bearer. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to the book of Nehemiah, we spent our time together last week introducing this book and considering a question, and we'll pick up with the question and the answer today. The question we asked last week was, what kind of man does God use? And for our purposes, follow with me, what kind of person, what kind of man or woman does God use? It's a wonderful question for us to consider because there's times in our life where we think God can't use us. We think for many reasons. We think because of maybe what we've done, maybe our sins in our past. We'll say, well, because I've done this, God can't use me now. 
Others will say, well, what kind of man or woman does God use? Well, who am I? I'm not anybody. My father was Hakaliah. What could God do with me? I'm just an ordinary Joe. I'm an everyman. I'm not a pastor. I'm not even a Sunday school teacher. I'm just a person in the pew. I'm a a layman, and I don't say that like, even when I say that, is I'm not putting that down. I'm, I'm just talking the way we talk in our language. We talk like this. Who can God use? What kind of person does God use? In Nehemiah's day, historians and commentators tell us that at the same time of his life, Aristophanes was writing his brilliant plays, the most common and Number one entertainment form of the ancient world was to take reality and to write it in the form of a play and to play act. And this was in the place of what we now have in our digital devices as entertainment streams or the common plays. And Aristophanes had the world by his pen entertaining the world. Nehemiah was no Aristophanes. So no doubt when he asked this question, who can God use? Can God use me? I'm not like Aristophanes, or maybe it was Herodotus who was also captivating the world with his pen, who was writing the best-selling history accounts of the day. We even quote as historians today, as pastor theologians today, as people who go back and study the ancient documents, Herodotus's history is invaluable for us to take and to compare and to understand what happened in the past. Herodotus was writing his history and his best-selling works Nehemiah was no Herodotus. Well, maybe as Nehemiah looked around and he saw Plato influencing the next generation of students with Greek philosophy that would no doubt influence the world as it has for many generations, Nehemiah says to himself, who am I? I'm no Plato. Many more I could give. I'll give one more. Nehemiah looks at another contemporary of his day and he says, well, there's Socrates brilliantly defining his philosophy. I'm no Socrates. Who am I? I'm just an ordinary man. And when we look at Nehemiah, we say the question, who does God use? God uses ordinary people, and he uses godly people. And that's what we established in our conclusion of last week's message. What do we mean by godly? Those who fear the Lord. Those who love God. Those who see the world as it really is. And you say, well, well, how is that? That there is a king, that he rules over all. His name is Jehovah. His name is Yahweh. The worldview of the God-fearer, the worldview of the Christian, believes that God created everything that we see. Everything that is was spoke ex nihilo by our creator God, not by the processes of evolution over millions of years and random chance and happenstance. Who is the person that God uses? It's the person who begins with God. That's what we mean by godly. It's the person who knows that God has created them and that the reason for their existence is that they exist for His own glory. Like the catechism question asks, what is the chief purpose of man? Well, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the person who knows that who's come by faith through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who's experienced that, who lives for that, is the one to whom God uses, regardless of what their pedigree is, regardless of what their dad or who their dad was or their mom or anyone else, 
even sons of Hakaliah. This morning, I want to frame our thoughts as we move into chapter 1 here. Number one, Nehemiah's position. Secondly, we'll look at Nehemiah's preparation. And then thirdly, we'll look at Nehemiah's prayer. Number one, Nehemiah's position. Number two, Nehemiah's preparation. And then number three, Nehemiah's prayer. First of all, I want you to note here in our text, interestingly enough, we'll jump down to verse 11. We normally work sequentially through the passage, but I want us to jump down to verse 11. Nehemiah's position. He's already been introduced to us in verse 1 as the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. But verse 11, I was the king's cupbearer. What we find here in Nehemiah's position is, who is this Nehemiah? This is a man serving under a Gentile king, a pagan king, but he's a man serving under a king who serves under another king, and that's the creator God. You could say it like this, Artaxerxes was under the kingship of God, whether he knew it or not. And Nehemiah served not only Artaxerxes, but he was able to look beyond Artaxerxes and see that he served the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. Commenting in my memory on Peter being in the prison, I believe it was Puritan Thomas Watson that said that Peter was in the hand of Nero, but Nero was much more in the hand of God. Speaking of Peter's release from from prison, Nehemiah's position. First of all, we notice here in the text that this man is strategically placed in the castle, in the, in the palace of Shushan, the king's palace in Shushan, much like God's pattern of using and raising up men and women, such as Joseph, Daniel, and Esther, more recently as we have studied. Nehemiah was in a position prepared by God to do the work of God, to help in the affliction of God's people. And notice what he tells us. This position is not a happenstance position. He is a a cup-bearer. Now, who is a cup-bearer, and what is a cup-bearer? Well, we would be reducing the position of cup-bearer to something too mundane if we thought that all he did was taste of the king's wine and eat one bite of the king's food. It's, his position includes that, but it is much more than that. When Nehemiah introduces himself to us here in verse 11, and he says, and I was the king's cup-bearer, this is an elite position. This position reveals much to us about his character, his personhood, his history, and his position in the palace. Persian kings lived in absolute, complete isolation, as we saw when we studied the book of Esther. For Nehemiah to be the king's cupbearer, it is to say he is constantly in the king's presence. If the king were to snack, if the king were to eat, if the king needed counsel, he would rest upon his cupbearer for much more than testing the food or the wine. But he would rest upon the cupbearer as a counselor. This man was not summoned to approach the king. He was in the king's presence almost at all times. In fact, the most common way to assassinate kings during this day was to poison the food. In fact, our word assassin is derived from a Persian word called hashashin. It's interesting, I had to practice that one. Hashish, hashashin is where we get the English word assassin from. An assassin was an eater or a smoker of hashish, the drug cannabis. And at the time of the Crusades, there was a sect of fanatical Muslims who pledged to kill Christians. And they committed their murderers, just for example, under the influence of cannabis. And so the hashashin or the hashish eater came to have a reputation as a murderer. And so for Nehemiah to be in his position, he had to embody traits of trustworthiness, loyalty, faithfulness, 
trust, if he was not loyal, or if his emotions were in flux, as we'll see in chapter 2, he changes. He is under an emotional burden, and immediately the king notices. Speaking of communication, they say that 80%, 90% of communication is nonverbal. It's not just what we say, it's, it's the look of our faces, the squinting of the eyes. It's how we say it. It reveals a lot more than we realize for all of us. As the king looks at Nehemiah's character, he's chosen him to serve in this way because of his character and because of his faithfulness, trustworthiness, and loyalty. But it would do the king well to continue to monitor those that he keeps close and see if there's any change in their personalities. If Nehemiah was to be under the influence of an assassin or to be in cohorts with an assassin who would desire to take the king's life, it would begin to more than likely change. He would be nervous. It would affect his ability to carry out the plot. So even in chapter 2, we see one of the first things that Artaxerxes notices is that Nehemiah is different. And we'll see the loaded question that Nehemiah, Nehemiah asks. Here's what we're trying to establish. Nehemiah's position. Nehemiah's position is much more than just tasting and eating. He's in one of the most influential positions in all of Xerxes' kingdom. And yet Nehemiah is there not because of Xerxes or Xerxes' uh, director of HR, power and choices and influence. He's there because God has placed him there. I want to ask you a question this morning. Where does God have you? Where do you serve? Tomorrow morning when you get up and you go somewhere, where are you going? You may be volunteering at certain places. You may be going to clock in somewhere, but where is that? And for each one of you here this morning, it's different. It's just as different as as many people are here in the room. For some of you, you no longer clock in, but I still have the question for you, where do you serve? You, You may be retired, we get that. That's the phase of life that you're in. But I just remind all of us that we never retire from serving God. In every chapter of life, in every sphere of life, the biblical worldview Christian asks this question, what am I doing to advance the kingdom of God? Why am I here? Well, I exist for God's glory. And as someone who exists for God's glory in this unique chapter and season of retirement, if we will, how can I serve God in the here and now? Do I have a passion for God? Do I have a concern for His kingdom and His will his fame and his renown. And if we simply look at Nehemiah in his position as something abstract and out there and back there in the Old Testament, friends, we'll be missing the point. And the point is God had Nehemiah right where he wanted him, but I want to ask you the question is, are you right where God wants you? That's something the Holy Spirit will have to lead you in examining and answering. Nehemiah was an ordinary man who was a godly man. Nehemiah was among ordinary people, and yet God had a purpose and plan for him to fulfill. And Nehemiah will find out in short order just exactly what that is. But have you made the connection between who you are and what's been put into you and God's unconscious preparation that you thought meant nothing in your 20s or in your 30s, in your 50s, in your 60s? But all of a sudden, God's helping you to understand that that unconscious preparation was not by happenstance. He prepared you for future moments. No doubt you can look back in your life and things that you thought were mundane, ordinary, inconsequential. You have lived long enough to see that that was for something. 
And the Lord's allowed you to reap the harvest of that experience, those circumstances, those trials. Friends, this is what keeps the Christian confident in his mighty God, knowing that there's nothing wasted in our ordinary lives. Every person you see here today is an ordinary person who's been saved by grace, or those who have not been saved by grace, but the Lord has appointed for them to be here even this morning, and he's working in them, he's calling them, he's drawing them, he's calling them to himself. Number one, Nehemiah's position. Who was he? Just an ordinary, godly man, a layman, and a layman that God has all of. God has all of him. Does God have all of me and all of you this morning? Secondly, I want us to notice not only Nehemiah's position, but Nehemiah's preparation. Notice with me verses 1 through 4, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hen and I, one of my brothers, came with men from Judah, and I asked, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. I asked them about the status, the update of the Jews who had survived the captivity and all things really concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and in great reproach. Why? Because the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Notice Notice what he does, verse 4. So it was that when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As we consider Nehemiah's preparation, you need to understand that Nehemiah loved Yahweh. He loved God. This was not a moment where Nehemiah began to seek God. Nehemiah was an ordinary man who did ordinary things like praying and fasting, not for physical purposes, although there may be tangible physical purposes to praying and fasting and the disciplines of grace, but it wasn't for those. It was because he loved his God. We often find out who we are and what we're made of. The Marines often say, I believe it is, you find out your level of preparation and training. In the moment of crisis, you fall to the highest level of preparation and training that you have. In other words, when the crisis comes or when the attack comes, that's not when you resolve, as many of us do when the doctor says to us, things need to change. Okay, we resolve to implement a better diet plan. Okay, I'm hitting too close to home. All right. <laughs> Nehemiah was an ordinary man living an ordinary life, loving the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, and strength. And as he asked this question, we see in his response, in the hidden man of the heart, why Nehemiah is used of the Lord, why the Lord has been at work in his life. It's because Nehemiah has a passion for God's glory. And Nehemiah's passion for God's glory actually echoes the purposes of God for his own self for his renown, for his glorious name to be echoed throughout all of his creation among the lips of his people. Notice the report that he receives. Nehemiah cares enough to ask. If he had never asked this question, he would not know of the report of what happened in Jerusalem. So we consider Nehemiah's preparation. Notice here in the text, he cares enough to ask the report that he receives. Hanani, Nehemiah's brother, gives him this report because Nehemiah cared enough to ask. 
Friends, I just have to hit pause here. The value of asking not only questions, but the value of caring. The value of caring not only about people, but God's work among the people. God's purposes in Jerusalem. Nehemiah took the time to not be consumed with self, to say, I must be about King Xerxes' business today. To not say, well, you know who I am. I am I'm a person of position and great responsibility. Good to see you guys. I've got stuff to do. Nehemiah cared enough to ask. And as he receives the answer to his question, when he hears the assessment of the wall, the temple is almost at completion, at completion, but it does no good because the walls are broken down. God's glory is being laughed at. The people cannot worship in peace because of fear of attack. As we see the background that we need to understand that will help us to understand some of these things is that Nehemiah has a passion for God's glory and it's why he asked this question. And you say, what what theme are you talking about, Legrand? Well, listen very carefully. I want to give you some passages of Scripture that help us, connect for us to understand Nehemiah's driving passion. Psalm 97 verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of the islands rejoice. Be glad. The psalmist here gives articulation and language to what should be the heartbeat of every believer, of every Christian. This is my heart. This is your heart. This is our heart. This is why we sing. What what is that? The Lord reigns. So because of that fact, let, let the earth rejoice. Let the nations be glad. Psalm 67, 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations of the earth. Psalm 104, 34. I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in you, O God. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Are you seeing a connection? Are you seeing a theme? Here's the theme. God's people have a passion for Him. God's people have a zeal for His glory. Psalm 115, turn there with me just briefly. Maybe encapsulates it in a a way that is a favorite passage for I know many of us. I know this is a favorite passage for many of you. Psalm 115. The psalmist begins in verses 1 and 2. And that is all we'll read just for the sake of time. But here's the ethos of the Christian song, if you will. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But that's exactly what the Gentiles are saying. Look at this city. Look at what we did to that temple. Look at what we did to those walls. These people can't even rebuild their wall. They can't get organized enough. To do what are the basics. And so the people are saying, so where is their God? And the people of God are living in tears. They're living in shambles. They're living in defeat. And they're living in such a way to where the Gentiles are saying, so where is their God? The psalmist goes on to say, but our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And he goes on to give description to how impotent, powerless the gods of men's hands are. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord 
He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Verse 13, he will bless those who fear the Lord. What kind of people does God use? Both small and great. Ordinary people. At times, children. Children, you may be asking, can the Lord use me? He used Samuel. He used Moses. Yes. If your trust is in him and him alone. If you love and worship him, if he has all of you. Listen, the Lord cares not about size. He cares about sort. He doesn't care about quantity. He cares about quality. Could the Lord use young David? Absolutely. More about that in in just a moment. There's a theme. I have so many texts here, but John Piper says this, where passion for God is weak, zeal for God's work will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and the beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire in the language of Psalm 96.3 to declare his glory among the nations. Even outsiders, he says, feel the disparity between the boldness of our claim upon the nations and the blandness of our engagement with God. As we look at this ordinary man named Nehemiah, God has been preparing him in the secret place, as Jesus describes, in the prayer closet. And as Nehemiah cares enough to ask this question, he receives the accurate assessment, the report of the state of Jerusalem, and immediately he is broken. Secondly, subheading I want us to see here under his preparation is not only the report that he seeks, but just as important as the news he receives is the reaction that Nehemiah shows us. Here in verse 4, how does he react? In the reaction of God's leaders, of God's people, really reveals a lot about their belief systems, their hearts, and their trust. Verse 4, notice here, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And notice how there's not a period there. This isn't grief for the sake of grief. This isn't emotions. You can't say about Nehemiah, well, he was just dismissively, he was just an, an emotional man. It may be. In one sense, we're all emotional, whether or not you have the ability to see that. In fact, John Stott, I believe it is, says there is such a thing as Christian tears, and the reality is, is we cry far too few of them. There's some, something true to that, very true to that. Well, notice there's not a period here, and he mourned for many days. He goes on to say, I began to fast and to pray before the God of heaven. Here, things begin to change. Nehemiah doesn't wring his hand in powerlessness. Nehemiah doesn't begin to make his rounds, passing on the the news of the report. Nehemiah doesn't pass on the information in in a gossipy sense for the sake of just, have you heard? Can you believe? The the believers, the, the people of God there in Jerusalem, they can't even get the walls built. There's no sense of critique in Nehemiah's assessment. In fact, his response is everything to us. He has a passion for God. He has a passion for the glory of God. And so it was when he heard these words, he sits down and he weeps. He mourns, not for the sake of mourning, but because of God's glory. Friend, let me just ask you, when is the last time you and I have missed a meal for God's glory in the sense of fasting? When is the last time we've 
had a season of mourning and prayer and brokenness over the state of our, our nation. When is the last time that our lives have been interrupted and we said, listen, I need to put everything on pause because I'm broken about the affairs and the state of my marriage, of my family. The walls are broken down in various ways. When is the last time we've been grieved for the glory of God? In the glory of God's name. Could it be that we're so busy that we don't have time to grieve for God's glory? Could it be that we're far too entertained that we don't have time to grieve for the glory of God and the defaming of His name? Could it be that we're too distracted that we have forgotten what true intercessory prayer is? Could it be that we're so distracted that we have forgotten what true spiritual fasting is as we pray before the God of heaven? Hear me carefully this morning. You don't hear what I have to say is, is do more, try harder, etc., etc. Jesus clearly teaches in Matthew chapter 6 that his people, his disciples, who are centered upon his person and work, part of that discipleship is seasons of fasting and prayer. It's one of those things we don't wax eloquent over the top of, but it exists. It exists, friends. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. When you fast, don't pray like them. Don't show the world you're fasting. Pinch your cheeks as you enter into the house of God. Ladies, put extra blush on that morning. And don't walk around with a dour face so that people would say, what's wrong? When you're truly burdened about the things of the Lord. Men, take a shower. Comb your hair. You get the idea. I'm not trying to keep going that direction. But the point is, is not so that people will know, but that the God who sees the heart it's for Him and for Him alone. There is such a thing as godly, gospel-centered prayer, fasting, seeking God's face. And I'm afraid if we're honest and have honest assessments, we need renewal in these areas. As a church, as homes, as families, as men, as wives, that we rest in the gospel and rest in Christ, yes, but that we have a burden for the glory of God and where it is not seen. That we have a burden for the fame of God's name and where it is not heard. Paul said that he desired to go and to preach the gospel to people who had never heard. He desired to expand the kingdom of God, that he be used of God to spread the glory of God among the heathen, among the nations, and among those who had not tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord. Nehemiah's reaction reveals so much about his view of the God of heaven. God immediately pierced his heart here in our text with a burden. This is a work of the Spirit, by the way. We can't manipulate these things. We can't manufacture these things immediately because Nehemiah cared enough to ask the question. God was working in his heart. And the truth be known is God had been preparing Nehemiah for this very moment, this very conversation. And, and again, I, I can't stress this point enough. When you look someone in the eyes with true sincerity and care, God allows, something is lost when we stop asking questions. Something's lost when we don't take the time to commune and have fellowship. In church, we've got to do everything possible to protect that here at Grace. To, to, to ask the question to be broken over the needs of one another so that we can know how to pray more intelligently for one another. 
And it's as Nehemiah looks in Hananiah's eyes and begins to see the emotion of the status of what is happening in Jerusalem, God immediately pierces Nehemiah's heart with a burden and brokenness over Jerusalem. This ordinary man's position in the palace does not cushion him from the needs of God's kingdom. I'm going to say that again. This ordinary man's position in King Artaxerxes' palace is cushioned, no doubt about it. Listen, this is what we all aspire to in, in our culture today. A good job, good benefits, provision. You'd want your daughter to marry this man with this type of security. You'd want this. This is a stable job, stable situation. In fact, it's so stable, he could, if he allowed it, to cushion him, not only from the needs of ordinary life, but the purposes of God in the world. And Nehemiah refuses to be cushioned from that. Immediately, his heart is broken, and revival and renewal begin to take place. This is Nehemiah's preparation. Immediately in this question and in this conversation, and I just want to hit pause again. I don't don't feel led to move on from this point. When is the last time you've asked someone a question, you took the time to converse and and to have the conversation? And friends, this is the value of next Sunday nights and Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and whatever the Lord leads you to. But I can't state this as enough. This is the value of doing what Grace Church does as we think about going, Grace Outreach, of marking off in our day a three or four hour span to be able to have a conversation. And it's in the quantity of the moment that quality questions and answers begin to emerge. Don't miss that. If we reduce our busyness and set aside time for hospitality and the purposes of evangelism, it's in the purposes of time and the quantity of time that all of a sudden little moments. Listen, hear me well when I say this. To set aside time for a gospel-focused lunch, to, to be prayerful towards certain things, is not a guarantee that it will happen. Don't get discouraged over it. It's not a guarantee that it will happen. It's an opportunity. Don't miss that. It's an opportunity. If you say, well, Pastor LeGrain, I've done this, and my, my dinner with my neighbor, it, it didn't go anywhere, really. It's okay. Commit it to the Lord. Offer it to the Lord as a, as a sacrifice, as unto Him. Do it again and again. And don't be surprised when all of a sudden walls are broken down, in a sense, in a good way. Walls that separate you from maybe getting into the innermost part of the heart of that man or that person, that woman, that child. All of a sudden, a moment that's here, and then it's gone. It's in those quantity of moments that there is quality moments that we have a chance to really have a conversation. When they feel like you're hearing them, you're asking out of interest, you say, LaGrande, this sounds like a bunch of psychology and self-help. No, 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 no. Friends, this is the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and teach them, reach them, go. That's what we're talking about. And to minimize the importance of intimate moments of conversations and one-on-one things happening is to miss it. The gospel is words. The gospel is preaching, but it's not only preaching. The gospel includes talk and conversations and prayer. Friends, we need to understand this. We need to understand that revival and renewal is becoming broken over the things that break God's heart. And as Nehemiah is experiencing 
through this question, this conversation, this answer, he is experiencing what we could call personal revival, personal renewal. And what is that? Again, personal renewal, personal revival is when we have a renewed passion for God's glory. When we return to love what he loves, when we begin to see the things that grieve his heart and it grieves our hearts as well. And I'm going to say something that may shock some of you when we hate what God hates. I'm going to say this again. What we see here in this text is Nehemiah experiencing revival and renewal. And what is that? Four key things. When we have a renewed return, a renewed passion for God's glory. When we have a renewed love and a return to loving what he loves. When we hate what he hates. That's a strong word and I mean every word of it. When we hate what God hates. And when it begins with the sin in our life before it begins with the sin of others. When we're broken over what God has broken over. You could summarize it like this. Revival and renewal is when we, when we begin to see as God sees. Turn with me if you will. Well, let's just hit. Well, turn with me if you will. Numbers chapter 13. Just very quickly, very briefly. We won't spend much time here. And I want to give you just a key assessment here. As Nehemiah is experiencing revival and renewal, which is preparing him for the work that God has for him, Nehemiah's vision of God begins to determine everything else in his life. You say it like this our vision of God determines every, everything else in our life. We'll kind of hit that theme here in just a moment. Now, Nehemiah is reacting to this report, and we don't have time to walk through all the examples that I would like to, but I'm going to give you one key one. Looking in Exodus, excuse me, Exodus, turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. I apologize if I gave you the wrong title. Numbers chapter 13, in verse 1. And, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. And now notice, we won't read those verses, but it begins to detail for us exactly those names who are gone. Then notice with me verse 16. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea the son of Nun, Joshua. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they be few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Drop down to verse 25. And they returned from spying out the land for 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and very large. 
Moreover, we saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Now, this is the reaction of the men who've been sent out. But all of these are not the same. There are some here that are not like the others. Notice who begins to speak, verse 30. Here's an example. You say, LeGrand, what are we doing? Here's an example of how godly men respond to great difficulty. Notice verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, come from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. You can just hear it now, can't you? You've got the Debbie Downers. You've got the ten who have their focus upon the problem at hand, the physical problem, but they have taken their eyes off of their great God. Here's a reaction that you can parallel of godly men who it has nothing to do with their, their godliness as if they had their own godliness that's not an imputed righteousness. It has nothing to do with their personalities or the size of their biceps or any of those things. These men are strong in their God. Daniel eleven thirty two. 32, the people who do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That's what we're talking about. But here's a minority and here's a majority. And the majority begins to quell the hearts of the people. And how do they do that? By getting the people to focus on the difficulty of the problem, the physicality of the problem, thinking horizontally and not vertically. And notice how Caleb has already spoken up. In verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Listen, this is no problem. Let us go up at once. Let us take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb is saying this not because of some type of personality bent. Caleb is not saying this because he's extraordinarily gifted in some measure of, of strength or skill set as a warrior. He's saying this because he knows who his God is. What's the point, LeGrand? The point is this. Our vision of God determines our vision of everything else. Nehemiah's vision of God determines his vision of everything else. And because Nehemiah saw his God accurately, he saw the problem, namely the walls of Jerusalem, the fame of God's name. He saw it all as accurate, doable, because he had a zeal for the glory of God. Of God. Notice verse 14, verse 1 there, chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation began to be influenced by these voices. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and all the people wept at night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this, in this wilderness. I'll let you read the rest of the passage of God's displeasure with them because of their lack of faith and trust in Him. Listen, the question isn't if the people of God are going into this land. They are. The question is when. And it's because of their grumbling and complaining and disobedience that God's, God's name was dishonored and His discipline, His chastisement came down among the people of God. 
The main reason I turn there, and we won't turn to other passages, is this. Godly men always reveal themselves, men and women, by how they react to not only difficulty, obstacles, but namely for our purposes here, the glory of God and His kingdom in shambles. What are you going to do about it? Nothing becomes dynamic and powerful until it becomes personal. Things don't become powerful and dynamic until they are owned. And what we see here in Nehemiah's life is that personal revival begins to take place. Personal renewal begins to take place. His vision of God determines his vision of everything else. And it begins to take off like an explosion spiritually because it's, listen here, personal. Nehemiah is not thinking, what is God going to do about this? Nehemiah is not saying, what are others going to do about this? Nehemiah begins to say, what can I do about this? Friend, I, I don't know who you are and where you are, particularly this morning, the Lord's convicting your heart or strengthening your heart or restoring your heart. But wherever you are faithfully living out your calling as a man, as a woman, as a mother, as a father, as a teacher, as a servant, as an elder, as a deacon, to everyone in the church, as God uses you in the ministry of the gospel at Grace Church, consider these things. Your vision of God determines your vision of everything else. Nothing becomes powerful until it becomes personal. As long as you are content to see the problem as out there and what are they going to do about it? What is he going to do about it? What is she going to do about it? Listen, God begins to work when you begin to seek his face and say, God, use me to be a part of your purpose and will for your glory. Use me. Let me have a role. Lord, pick me. Use me. Allow me. Well, that leads very quickly to number three, not only Nehemiah's position, Nehemiah's preparation, a work of the Spirit of God, but notice with me quickly here, Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer, beginning there in verse 5, Nehemiah cries out to the Lord, and he said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants. And I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Here we begin to see the formulation and the outline of Nehemiah's prayer. What gets God's heart? Now, I know even asking that question makes some of you nervous, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What gets God's heart? Or you can say it like this, what grabs God's attention? You need to understand this, that God doesn't see as men see. God doesn't look at the outward appearance as men see, and that's not a put-down We're limited beings. 
We, we can't see spiritually as God sees, but we need to be reminded that God sees differently than you see and that I see. For man only looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. To everything that you see and every person that you see, there's more than what is seen. There is the inner man and there is the outer man. What gets God's attention? A sincere heart that is bent towards the Lord. Proverbs 8 verse 17, I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. Jeremiah 29, 13, and you shall seek me and you shall find me when you search for me, notice here, with all your heart, or literally with an undivided heart. James mentions this when he says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Could it be the reason that you've not taken that step forward spiritually in your walk with Christ and your growth in grace is because you have a, undi- you have a divided heart. You are wavering between two opinions. You're not seeking for him with all of your heart, your soul, and your strength. Psalm 51, 17 points to this theme as well, but mentions a different facet of it. And it describes the status of the heart, the the state of the heart. It's not a hard heart, but it's a softened heart. It sounds like this, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to them that are of a broken heart and those who are of contriteness. Of spirit. I could read passage after passage. Who is it that gets God's attention? Listen, it's those, his children, who are not coming to him puffed up in pride. James describes it those who come in the sense of the flesh, in the work of the flesh, God resists. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, have you humbled yourself in salvation by seeing your need to be saved? Until you are broken over your sin, God not only cannot use you, He will not use you, He will resist you. Friend, this morning, if you're listening to me, have you seen the despair of your soul before a thrice holy God? Have you seen Him as He is revealed to us in Scripture? He is holy, holy, holy. Do you see God as holy, holy, holy? And it's not until you see our holy God that you can see your sin. In a minute, we're going to turn to Isaiah 6, and we'll see more about that in just a moment. But listen, until you understand that your moral righteousness, your goodness, your innate talents and abilities cannot save you, friend, God cannot use you. But to those who see their need for grace, for Christ, to those who understand that they need to be saved not only from their sin and their wickedness, but they need to be saved from all their goodness, which the Bible tells us that even the very best of men is as a filthy rag to God. It's because He's holy. He's pure. When you see God, do you see Him in this way? Friend, maybe it's the reason that God has, you sense that He is far from you. You sense that He is removed from you, and yet you know that you are His child. You know that you are in Christ It could be that you are in a season of sin. Your fellowship with your heavenly Father is broken. And you need to return to the prayer of the psalmist that says, Search me, O God, and try me, and know me, and see if there be, Psalm 139, see if there be any wicked way in me, because my heart has grown cold. I don't have the passion for your glory. 
I don't have a zeal for your fame. I don't have a concern for your kingdom. And so because the love is lost and the fire has gone out, if you will, Lord, there must be something wrong. I sense it. I know it. So search me, O God. Try me and know me. Well, as Nehemiah begins to experience this personal revival, notice in his prayer, he models for us a wonderful outline. And we'll just move through this very quickly. Uh, Recently, we had a class go through praying the Bible. Here, Nehemiah models for us the ACTS, A-C-T-S, kind of outline of prayer. Our our goal here is not to all of a sudden begin to be overly formulaic or to begin to say, you need to start praying like this. We just note the scriptures as it's revealed to us. Notice in verse 5, As Nehemiah begins to express his heart before the Lord, these elements of his prayer. First, adoration. Nehemiah models for us how to pray. As he comes to God, he begins, remember what we said earlier, our view of God determines our view of everything else. So here in Nehemiah's prayer, he begins with a right view of God. He doesn't come to God as a a Santa Claus that that is uh, all heart and all love and all grace that he can manipulate. He sees God as he truly is. And he adores him. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Nehemiah begins in a place of worship. He reminds his heart who he's praying to. Lord God of heaven, O great an awesome God. Here's the reason why many of us can't pray that, because your problems have become bigger than God. When you go to pray, you can't pray, oh Lord, great and awesome God. It's not that it's not true, it's that it's, you've lost it. You're so focused on the problem, you're so focused on the here and now, that it's, it consumes you. It's all you think about, that you've gotten your eyes off of the great God of heaven. And every God-centered prayer begins with, Lord God of heaven. And friend, when it begins with the Lord God of heaven and you work your way back down to the here and now, all of a sudden, this changes. This is nothing, whatever this is. It's no big deal because of the great God of heaven. There's so much for us here. Do not lose sight, love, and worship of who God is, who He truly is. Every problem that we have begins with this. We minimize who God is. We begin to maximize the problems and the relationships and the the trials and the circumstances and the ailments of our bodies, and we just begin to focus on those things, and we lose hope, we lose heart. Friend, keep your eyes fixed in adoration upon the great God of heaven, the old great and awesome God, the personal work of Jesus Christ, His Son, the presence of the Holy Spirit within who leads us into the truth, who shows us our sin. And when He convicts you of sin and righteousness and judgment, praise the great God of heaven that He's given you the gift of His Word, His Son, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Adoration. We have so much to praise Him for. So much more I could say here. I need to move quickly. The C part of Acts, if you will, the Acts method of praying, Nehemiah's prayer. Notice in verse 6 and verse 8, Nehemiah moves from adoration. He starts with God, and then he realizes his need for confession. Notice what he says. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, 
and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Notice here, which we, not which they, Nehemiah owns the sins of his nation. Nehemiah doesn't pray piously, thank God I'm not like these people, like the tax collector and the publican we see in Luke's gospel. Notice language is important. The I and the we's reveal so much about our language and our conversations and our prayers. Us and we reveals a posture of humility. It reveals our ownership and our part in the situation. The you and the I or the me, the separation, removes us in a false attempt to say, I don't have that problem. I've not sinned these sins. I am better than they. And so I don't have a need to repent, but they have a need to repent. No, 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 no. Humble your sight. Humble yourself in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Friends, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if you want freedom in Christ, you must confess your sins. If you try to cover, if you try to hide, listen, you compound the effects of guilt, broken fellowship, and ultimately, if you continue in that state, reveal yourself to not be a child of God. If it's cover, cover, hide, hide. Cover, cover, hide, hide. You will not experience freedom in Christ and the power of the Spirit and the freeness of your relationship in the gospel that you claim to have. Here in Nehemiah's confession, he owns corporately the sins of his nation, the sins of his people, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Here he's praying, not only the judgments of God, but the promises of God. Remember, O Lord, your judgments and your promises. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return... Listen, there's always the opportunity to repent and return. All throughout the Old Testament history books, major prophets, minor prophets, the Gospels, Jesus is looking for those who will return, those who turn from their sins and turn to Him for forgiveness, for grace. There is no one that God can't save. Well, there, there is one. Now I have some of your attention. There's no one God can't save, but, well, actually there's one. It's those who are too full of themselves. It's those who are so self-sufficient that they see no need for Christ. There's no one too small. There's no one too great. As long as they see their need, their great sin debt before a thrice holy God, God can save anyone except those like Judas, Cain, those like Pilate who wash their hands of Jesus and say, I don't have a need for these things. Don't, don't hear all the things I'm not saying. God can save anyone. There are those who never get to the point where they don't see their need. Nehemiah here confesses his sin personally and corporately. Confession is agreeing with God about reality. Confession is saying, God... Your word says this about my sin. Your word says this about our sin. We recognize it. We bring into the light the reality of the situation. Confession is not him hawing around the sin. It's bringing into the light. 
standing with God's law and his word against yourself and your sin, saying, God, I see my sin for what it is, and I confess it. And friends, it's in that process of bringing your sin into the light of God's holiness that you receive his forgiveness and his grace, cleansing and restoration. But not until that moment happens will you experience the freedom of forgiveness and grace that God extends. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Going back to the person that God can't save, it's to the person who can't confess his sin. You are making God a liar and you're saying his word is not true about your state. To those who say, I have no need for these things, you're saying that you have no need for the the promised one of God who came to save you from your sins. You make God a liar. Proverbs 28, 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Confession or covering, which will it be, friends? Nehemiah models for us this coming before the Lord And not covering the sins of his people, not minimizing the sins of the people. The walls are broken, the gates are burned. And Nehemiah recognizes that all of these things are God's judgments upon the people who wandered from him in their hearts. And so he comes, the personal aspect and the corporate aspect. Very quickly, turn with me just briefly to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, I just want to point out, this is a pattern in Scripture. And I hope you'll trust me when I say I have whittled this sermon down. We, we, could, we could be here till 3 o'clock, I promise. And we're not going to be, I promise. We're almost done. Isaiah chapter 6, notice the same process happens in Isaiah's understanding and repentance and revival. Isaiah was a man who served. Notice here in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim, Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So what do we see here? In verses 1 through 4, Isaiah sees the glory and the holiness of God. His view of God determines his view of everything else. Everything else is reassessed, reframed, and notice his personal prayer and corporate prayer of repentance. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's the personal, that's the corporate. Well, how do you know this, Isaiah? He says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Church, what we're seeing here in Nehemiah is, Life and testimony is that when his eyes saw the king, his vision of God by faith determined everything else in his life, personal revival, renewal, repentance, and prayer. Notice in this prayer, coming back to our text, we see adoration, confession. Very quickly, there's thanksgiving. Here in our passage, Nehemiah is thankful for God's redemption, his power, and his promises, and he pleads the promises of God. He pleads with the Lord not to forget his promises. And then supplication, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. 
Nehemiah prays specifically that God would listen to his prayer and grant him success with the king. This man, the most powerful man on the earth at this time is the man next to Nehemiah that he serves with every single day. The man who could take Nehemiah's life with one snap of his fingers. Nehemiah dwells in his presence. Everyone else has to request, even Esther, even the wife, even others, uh, servants, all of them have to request permission. They cannot waltz into his presence or they will be killed. And yet here Nehemiah serves in the presence of this, of this king. Well, how can he do this? How can he prepare for what are the next steps? Well, he has personal renewal, personal revival, personal restoration, personal forgiveness that he receives from the great God of heaven. Nehemiah is an ordinary man, a godly man who models for us appropriate repentance, revival, and praise because his eyes are fixed upon God. And when your eyes are fixed upon God, the fear of Yahweh, the fear of God, listen here, removes every other secondary fear in your life. Don't miss that, friends. If, you've, if I've lost track, if you've lost track, if I've lost you, uh, I forgive. Ask for forgiveness. But don't miss that point right there. Every single person in this room is in fear of something or someone. It's a part of being creatures. Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare, a trap. But we could also add with that the fear of all kinds of things bring traps. And they control us. Satan controls by fear and the spiritual warfare that he brings. But friends, the Christian life is not one of earthly fear. It's certainly one of heavenly fear, the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. We understand that. The Christian life, the life of a disciple is one of faith. And when we have our vision fixed upon God, when we fear the Lord, all lesser fears, all secondary fears find their proper place. That's what we see here in the life of Nehemiah. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 18 says, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Well, no one's calling them that because they're broken down. So what are we going to do about it? What is Nehemiah going to do about it? As I close this morning, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit, allow, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to take His Word and apply it beyond what's already been attempted here this morning. But I do want to close with a question. What walls are broken down in your life that need to be repaired? What walls in your marriage, in your home, in the workplace, in your testimony, in your profession of being a disciple of Jesus what walls have grown into disrepair? The weeds have completely taken them over. And repentance and renewal and revival needs to take place. Not far from here, just right down the road. You can drive down the road and you can see on the right side of the road is a house, is a fence line, is a garage, cars, maybe one car, I'm going to believe, if I remember correctly. And it's all completely covered up in vines and kudzu, that the maintenance and the tending of all of it has gone away. It's overtaken it. But I want you to know, if we went down there today with a renewed zeal, follow the metaphor for just metaphor's sake. Don't read into it too much. Together, 
we could restore it. Vines have covered up what once remained, what once was there. But together, we could be used of the Lord to to restore. That's what we're talking about. What in your life is so far gone that you think it can't be repaired, that you think it can't be restored? I just want you to know, nothing is too hard for God. Nehemiah was able to come to the God who keeps His covenant and His commandments. And the reality is, is God is the only one who can do that. We cannot. We're frail, broken sinners. And so we come this morning looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life for me and for you, who lived perfectly, sinlessly, righteously, holy, in ways that we cannot. We fall short of His glory every single time. To those who see their need for Christ, they confess their sins and they call upon the name of Christ and ask Him for cleansing, forgiveness, and renewal. And the reality is, is the Bible says when we call upon the name of the Lord, confess with our lips and believe in our hearts, we shall be saved. We are new creatures in Christ spiritually. Behold, we walk in the newness of life. And even for those who've been saved, gloriously saved, who walk and have known and tasted and seen of that goodness of God and walk in newness of life, we can lose our way. And so my final point this morning is this, is for some of you, where have you lost your way? Where have you gotten off track? Yes, you're a Christian, you're a child of God, you know that, but yet things aren't right this morning. Why would you simply say, where did you get off track? Where did you get off the path? And you need to go find and maybe wrestle with God and say, God, where is the sin that began all the other sins that got me off track in a state of prodigal living or a state of just leaving you? I'm here in body, but my heart is far from you. I'll just tell you, until you find that moment, that place, and confess and say what God's Word says about that, you will not experience repentance, renewal, and revival. But wherever that place is, you come to grips with the reality of what God's Word says about your sin, and you bring it into the light, and you begin to walk in the light and stand with God in His Word against your own sin and receive His forgiveness and His grace, there you're going to experience renewal and revival. May the Lord help us and apply his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you for your truth and your word. Father, our hope and our rest is as we look at this book of Nehemiah, it's not to hope in him or his character or his work, but to rest in the finished work of Christ. Father, we rest in you and you alone. And Father, this morning, in my final moment here in prayer, I just want to pray over the people of God here at Grace and say, Father, would you revive a glorious vision of who you are, reigning on your throne, that your glory be declared among the nations, beginning with us in our homes and our lives, our witness, our testimonies. Father, would you be at work in and through the people of grace? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.